said salute welcome back to the manifest string podcast just a quick rundown of what we'll be talking about this episode of course we're going to be continuing our read through of philosophical trends in the feminist movement we'll do a brief recap of last episode we covered chapter one about liberal feminism we'll move that forward this episode into chapter two about radical feminism also we'll talk a little bit about covid19 because that is completely unavoidable at this point as always, any questions, concerns, comments, and death threats can be sent to me on Twitter at ManifestPod. So we'll go ahead and start by talking about COVID-19 just briefly. I mean, there's not a whole lot more to say about it now than there was last time I recorded. We're still watching it kind of unfold in horror. I know like many of you, um, I'm out of work myself currently, which is a major, major concern, especially for those of us that do live paycheck to paycheck. Kind of showing capitalism laid bare here when we have so many people living paycheck to paycheck. When we miss one of those paychecks, it can create absolute havoc for us. So hoping that the government gets it together enough to get um, some funding out to citizens that desperately need it because things could take a dark turn the longer we have people uh, destitute and um, not able to pay for basic necessities. Unsurprisingly, Trump has used this opportunity to be extremely racist and xenophobic. He has called COVID-19 the China virus several times now. Now, his reason for doing so, I believe, is twofold. First of all, it's an attempt, an obvious attempt, to shirk responsibility and absolve himself of any wrongdoing, because he completely fucking fumbled this, because of course he did. Uh, the more nefarious reason, however, has to do with white supremacy and xenophobia. Anytime there's a crisis in the United States of America, whether it be this pandemic or something like 9-11, where so many Americans went on to vilify every Muslim throughout the country and around the world, it's a shining example of how this country reverts to white supremacy anytime anything bad happens. Obviously, if you're listening to this podcast, you realize that the United States of America is built upon the pillars of white supremacy. So even in 2020, in the supposedly post-racial nation, it takes the smallest thing, not that this pandemic is small, but it takes the smallest inconvenience for white people to blame people of color. That white supremacy is always brimming under the surface. On a more personal note, as I just talked about, I know many of you are probably either out of work or know someone who is, so times are tough. I personally just had a lot of friends laid off from Powell's bookstore in Portland, Oregon. Now, Emily Powell, the CEO, put out this message, which is absolutely absurd, about how Powell's is run on duct tape and twine, and it's just this little family business. As someone who worked for that company for several years, I can tell you that's complete fucking bullshit. They have used this as an excuse to not give the employees any type of severance. So fortunately, Powell's is unionized. So if you would like to contribute to the effort to make some of those employees' lives a little easier, do go to their, their union website is ilwulocal5.com and contribute if you can, because there's a lot of really good people that are out of work. Moving away from the virus, let's go ahead and talk about philosophical trends in the feminist movement. Now, last week we went over chapter one concerning liberal feminism. And at the end of the day, the critique of liberal feminism is the fact that it is in no way intersectional. It favors Western, white women for the most part, or bourgeois women throughout the globe, and completely leaves out the question of most of the women in the world, especially women of color, 
who are exploited around the globe. Another major issue with liberal feminism, aside from just, you know, completely forgetting about the vast majority of women, is that it calls for reformism over any type of revolution. They're calling for small changes through things like electoral politics, and not to use, overuse this phrase, but it, it tends to just want to put a tiny band-aid over what is a gaping wound. And that's not to completely dismiss liberal feminism. If nothing else, it did put the question of women's rights on the radar for a lot of people who had maybe never thought of that before, so at least you're asking that question now. Again, it just did not represent enough women, especially those that are super exploited around the globe, and it didn't go far enough in what it was asking for. It was asking for minor change when, honestly, something like a revolution is needed. That being said, let's go ahead and move on to chapter two. Chapter 2, Radical Feminism Within bourgeois feminism, in the first phase of the women's movement in the 19th and early 20th centuries, liberalism was the dominant ideology. In the contemporary phase of the women's movement, radical feminism has had a strong impact and in many ways, though disfused, many ideas and positions can be traced to the radical feminist argument. In contrast to the pragmatic approach taken by liberal feminism, Radical feminism aimed to reshape society and restructure its institutions, which they saw as inherently patriarchal. Providing the core theory for modern feminism, radicals argued that a woman's subservient role in society was too closely woven into the social fabric to be unraveled without a revolutionary revamping of society itself. They strove to supplant hierarchical and traditional power relationships, which they saw as reflecting a male bias with non-hierarchical and anti-authoritarian approaches to politics and organization. In the second phase of feminism in the U.S., the radical feminists emerged from the social movements of the 1960s, including the Civil Rights Movement, the New Left Movement, and the Anti-Vietnam War slash Peace Movement. They were women who were dissatisfied with the role given to women in these movements and the way the New Left tackled the women's question in its writings, theoretical and popular. At the same time, none of them wanted to preserve the existing system. Hence, in its initial phase, the writings were a debate with Marxism, an attempt to modify or rewrite Marxism. Later on, as the radical feminist movement became strong, Marxism was cast aside and the entire emphasis shifted to an analysis of the sex and gender system and patriarchy delinked from the exploitative capitalist system. In this contemporary phase of feminism, attention was focused on the origins of women's oppression, and many theoretical books were written trying to analyze the forms of women's oppression and tracing the roots of this oppression. Yet one thing that needs to be kept in mind is that in all their writing, they kept only their own society in mind. Hence, all their criticism, description, and analysis deal with advanced capitalist societies, especially in the U.S., in 1970, Kate Millett published the book Sexual Politics, in which she challenged the formal notion of politics and presented a broader view of power relationships, including the relationship between men and women in society. Hence, she titled her book Sexual Politics. Here she made the claim that the personal was political, which became a popular slogan for the feminist movement. By the personal is political, what she meant was that the discontent individual women feel in their lives is not due to individual failings, 
but due to the social system, which has kept women in subordination and oppresses her in so many ways. Her personal feelings are therefore political. In fact, she reversed the historical materialist understanding by asserting that the male-female relationship is a framework for all power relationships in society. According to her, this quote-unquote social caste, as in dominant men and subordinated women, supersedes all other forms of inequality, whether racial, political, or economic. This is the primary human situation. These other systems of oppression will continue because they get both logical and emotional legitimacy from oppression in this primary situation. Patriarchy, according to her, was a male control over the private and public world. According to her, to eliminate patriarchy, men and women must eliminate gender, i.e. sexual status, role, and temperament, as they have been constructed under patriarchy itself. Patriarchal ideology exaggerates the biological differences between men and women and subordinates women. Millet advocated for a new society which would not be based on the sex gender system and in which men and women are equal. At the same time, she argued that we must proceed slowly, eliminating undesirable traits like obedience among women and arrogance among men. Kate Millett's book was very influential for a long time. It is still considered a classic for modern radical feminist thinking. Another influential early writer was Shulamith Firestone, who argued in her book Dialectics of Sex in 1970 that the origin of women's subordination and men's domination lay in the reproductive roles of men and women. In the book, she rewrites Marx and Engels. What Engels had written about historical materialism as follows, quote, that the view of the course of history, which seeks the ultimate cause and great moving power of all historical events in the economic development of society, in the changes of modes of production and exchange, in the consequent division of society into distinct classes, and in the struggles of these classes against one another." Unquote. Firestone rewrote this as follows, quote, historical materialism is that view of the course of history which seeks the ultimate cause and the great moving power of all historical events in the dialectic of sex, the division of society into two distinctly biological classes for procreative reproduction and the struggle of these classes with one another, in the changes in the mode of marriage, reproduction, and childcare created by these struggles, in the connected development of other physically differentiated classes or castes, and in the first division of labor based on sex, which developed into the economic and cultural class system." Unquote. Firestone focused on reproduction instead of production as the moving force of history. Further, instead of identifying social causes for women's condition, she stressed biological reasons for her condition and made it the moving force in history. She felt that the biological fact that women bear children is the material basis for women's submission in society, and it needs a biological and social revolution to affect human liberation. She too was of the opinion that the sex and gender difference needs to be eliminated, and human beings must be androgynous. But she went further than Kate Millett in the solution she advocated to end women's oppression. She was of the opinion that unless women give up their reproductive role and no longer bear children, and the basis of the existing family is changed, it is not possible to completely liberate women. 
Hence, according to her, unless natural reproduction was replaced by artificial reproduction, and the traditional biological family replaced by intentional family, biological divisions between the sexes could not be eliminated. Biological family is a family in which members are genetically connected, parents and children, while the intentional family, according to her, means a family chosen by friendship or convenience. She believed that if this change occurs, the various personality complexes that develop in present society will no longer exist. Others wrote about how historically the first social conflict was between men and women. Man the hunter was prone to violence, and he subjugated women through rape. These writings set the tone for the women's movement, the more radical section of it, which was not satisfied with the efforts of liberal feminists to change the laws and campaign on such issues. They gave the push to delve into women's traditional hitherto taken for granted reproductive role, into gender and sex differences, and to question the very structure of society as being patriarchal, hierarchical, and oppressive. They called for a total transformation of society. Hence, radical feminists perceived themselves as a revolutionary rather than reformist group. Their fundamental point is that the sex and gender system is the cause of women's oppression. They considered the man-woman relationship, in isolation from the rest of the social system, as a fundamental contradiction. As a result, their entire orientation and direction of analysis and action deals primarily with this contradiction, and this has taken them towards separatism. Since they focused on the reproductive role of women, they make sexual relations, family relations, the central targets of their attack to transform society. Sex, Gender, System, and Patriarchy The central point in the radical feminist understanding is the sex and gender system. According to a popular definition given by Gail Rubin, the sex and gender system is a, quote, set of arrangements by which a society transforms biological sexuality into products of human activity, unquote. This means that patriarchal society uses certain facts about male and female physiology, sex, as the basis for constructing a set of masculine and feminine identities and behavior, gender, that serve to empower men and disempower women, that is, how a man should be and how a woman should be. This, according to them, is the ideological basis of women's subordination. Society is somehow convinced that these culturally determined behavior traits are quote-unquote natural. Therefore, they said that quote-unquote normal behavior depends on one's ability to display the gender identities and behavior that society links with one's biological sex. Initially, the radical feminist, like the Boston group or the radical New York group, upheld Kate Millett's and Firestone's views and focused on the ways in which the concept of femininity and the reproductive and sexual roles and responsibilities, child-rearing, etc., served to limit women's development as full persons. So they advocated androgyny. Androgyny means being both male and female, having the traits of both male and female, so that rigid sex defined by roles don't remain. This means women should adopt some male traits, and men adopt some female traits. But later, in the 1970s, one section of radical feminists rejected the goal of androgyny and believed that it meant that women should learn some of the worst features of masculinity. Instead, they proposed that women should affirm their femininity. Women should try to be more like women, 
i.e. emphasize women's virtues such as interdependence, community, connection, sharing, emotion, body, trust, absence of hierarchy, nature, imminence, process, joy, peace, and life. From here onwards, their entire focus became separatist. Women should relate only to women. They should build a women's culture and institutions. With their understanding about sexuality changed, they believed that women should become lesbians and they supported monogamous lesbian relations as best for women. Politically, they became pacifist. Violence and aggression are masculine traits, according to them, that should be rejected. They say women are naturally peace-loving and life-giving. By building alternative institutions, they believed that they were bringing revolutionary change. They began building women's clubs, making women's films and other forms of separate women's culture. In their understanding, revolutionary transformation of society will take place gradually. This stream is called the cultural feminist trend because they are completely concentrating on the culture of society. They are not relating culture to the political economic structure of society. But this became the main trend of radical feminism and is intertwined with ecofeminism and postmodernism as well. Among the well-known cultural feminists are Marilyn French and Mary Daly. Sexuality, heterosexuality, and lesbianism. Since man-woman relations are the fundamental contradiction for radical feminists, they have paid a great deal of attention to the sexual relations between men and women. Sexuality has become the arena where most of the discussions and debates of radical feminism were concentrated. The stand of the Christian churches in the West regarding various issues, including sex and abortion, has been extremely conservative. This is more so in countries like the United States, France, and Italy. Christian morality has defended sex only after marriage and opposed abortion. The radical feminist theorists confronted these questions head-on. At the same time, they also exposed how in a patriarchal society within sexual relations, even within marriage, women often feel a sense of being dominated. It is in this background that questions of sexual repression, compulsory heterosexuality and homosexuality, or sexual choice, became issues of discussion and debate. The radical feminists believe that in a patriarchal society, even in sexual relations and practices, male domination prevails. This has been termed as repression by the first trend in ideology of sexual objectification by cultural feminists. According to them, sex is viewed as bad, dangerous, and negative. The only sex permitted and considered acceptable is marital heterosexual practice, as in heterosexuality means sexual relations between people of different sexes, that is, between men and women. There is pressure from patriarchal society to be heterosexual, and sexual minorities, the LGBTQ plus community, etc., are considered as intolerable. Sexual pleasure, a powerful natural force, is controlled by patriarchal society by separating so-called good, normal, or healthy sexual practice from bad, unhealthy, illegitimate sexual practice. But the two streams have very different understanding of sexuality, which also affects the demands they make and solutions they offer. According to the radical feminist trend, sexual repression is one of the crudest and most irrational ways for the forces of civilization to control human behavior. Permissiveness is in the best interest of women and men. 
On the contrary, cultural feminists consider that heterosexual sexual relations are characterized by an ideology of objectification in which men are masters, subjects, and women are slaves, objects. Quote, Heterosexualism has certain similarities to colonialism, particularly in its maintenance through force when paternalism is rejected and in the portrayal of domination as natural and in the de-skilling of women, unquote. Sarah Lucia Hoagland. This is a form of male sexual violence against women. Hence, feminists should oppose any sexual practice that normalizes male sexual violence. According to them, women should reclaim control over their sexuality by developing a concern with their own sexual priorities which differ from the priorities of men. Women, they say, desire intimacy and caring rather than the performance. Hence, they advocated that women should reject heterosexual relations with men and become lesbians. On the other hand, the radicals believe that women must seek their pleasure according to Gail Rubin, not make rules. For the cultural feminists, heterosexuality is about male domination and female subordination, and so it sets the stage for pornography, prostitution, sexual harassment, and women battering. Hence, they advocated that women should give up heterosexual relations and go into lesbian relations in which there is emotional involvement. Cultural feminists emphasize the need to develop the essential quote-unquote femaleness of women. Lesbianism was pushed strongly within the women's movement in the West in the early 80s, but it receded a few years later. The solution offered by cultural feminists to end the subordination of women is breaking the sexual relationship between men and women with women forming a separate class themselves. The first trend they are advocating, free sexual relations, as in sexual relations dealing from any emotional involvement, whether with men or with women. In fact, the solutions which they are promoting make an intimate human relationship into a commodity type or an impersonal relationship. From here, it is one step to support pornography and prostitution. While cultural feminists strongly opposed pornography, the radicals did not agree that pornography had any adverse impact on the way men viewed women. Instead, they believed that pornography could be used to overcome sexual repression. Even on questions of reproductive technology, the two sides differed. While the radicals supported reprotech, the cultural feminists were opposed to it. The cultural feminists were of the opinion that women should not give up motherhood, since this is the only power they have. They have been active in the ethical debates raised by Reprotech, like rights of the surrogate or biological mother. Critique From the account given above, it is clear that radical feminists have stood Marxism on its head, so to speak. Though we will deal with Firestone's arguments in the section on socialist feminists, some points need to be mentioned. In their understanding of material conditions, they have taken the physical fact of reproduction and women's biological role as the central point for their analysis and concluded that this is the main reason for women's oppression. Marx had written that production and reproduction of life are the two basic conditions for human existence. Reproduction means both the reproduction of the person on a day-to-day -day basis and the reproduction of the human species. But in fact, reproduction of the species is something humans share with the animal kingdom. This could not be the basis for women's oppression. For in all the thousands of years that people lived in the first stages of human existence, women were not subordinated to men. 
In fact, her reproductive role was celebrated and given importance because the survival of the species and the group depended on reproduction. The importance given to fertility and the fertility rituals surviving in most tribal societies are testimony of this fact. Marxism understands that some material conditions had to arise due to which the position of women changed and she was subordinated. The significant change in material conditions came with the generation of considerable surplus production. How this surplus would be distributed is the point at which classes arose, the surplus being appropriated by a small number of leading people in the community. Her role in reproduction, the cause of her elevated status earlier, became a means of her enslavement which the clan or extended family, the children she bore belonged to, became important and it is then that we find restrictions on her and the emergence of the patriarchal family in which the woman was subordinated and her main role in society was begetting children for the family. Radical feminists have treated historical development and historical facts lightly and imposed their own understanding of the man-woman contradiction as the original contradiction and the principal contradiction which has determined the course of actual history. From this central point, the radical feminist analysis abandons history altogether, ignores the political-economic structure, and concentrates only on the social and cultural aspects of advanced capitalist society, and projects the situation there as a universal human condition. This is another major weakness in their analysis and approach. Since they have taken the man-woman relationship, or the sex-gender relationship, as the central contradiction in society, all their analysis proceeds from it and men become the main enemies of women. Since they do not have any concrete strategy to overthrow the society, they shift their entire analysis to a critique of the superstructural aspects, the cultural, language, concepts, and ethics, without concerning themselves with the fact of capitalism and the role of capitalism in sustaining this sex-gender relationship, and hence the need to include the overthrow of capitalism in their strategy for women's liberation. While making extremely strong criticisms of the patriarchal structure, the solutions they offer are in fact reformist. Their solutions are focused on changing roles and traits and attitudes and the moral values and creating an alternative culture altogether. Practically, it means people can, to some extent, give up certain values. Men can give up aggressive traits by recognizing them as patriarchal. Women can try to be bolder and less dependent. But when the entire structure of society is patriarchal, how far can these changes come without an overthrow of the entire capitalist system is a question they do not address at all. So it ends up turning into small groups trying to change their lifestyle, their interpersonal relations, a focus on the interpersonal rather than the entire system. Though they began by analyzing the entire system and wanting to change it, their line of analysis has taken them in a reformist channel. Women's liberation is not possible in this manner. The fault lies with their basic analysis itself. The cultural feminists have gone one step further by emphasizing the essential differences between males and females, and claiming that female traits and values, not feminine, are desirable. This argument gives the biological basis of male-female differences more importance than social upbringing. This is in fact a counterproductive argument because conservative forces in society have always used such arguments, called biological determinism, to justify domination over a section of people. The slaves were slaves because they had those traits and they needed to be ruled. 
they could not look after themselves. Women are women and men are men and they are basically different, so social roles for women and men are also different. This is the argument given by reactionary conservative forces which are opposed to women's liberation. Hence, the basic argument they are putting forward has dangerous implications and can and will rebound on the struggle of women for change. Masculinity and femininity are constructs of a patriarchal society, and we have to struggle to change these rigid constructs. But it is linked to the overthrow of the entire exploitative society. In a society where patriarchal domination ceases to exist, how men and women will be, what kind of traits will they adopt is impossible for us to say. The traits that human beings will adopt will be in connaissance. In a society where patriarchal domination ceases to exist how men and women will be, what kind of traits they will adopt is impossible for us to say. The traits that human beings will then adopt will be in consonance with the type of society that will exist, since there can be no human personality outside some social framework. Seeking this femaleness is like chasing a mirage and amounts to self-deception. By making heterosexualism as a core point in their criticism of the present system, they encouraged lesbian separatism and thus took the women's movement to a dead end. Apart from forming small communities of lesbians and building up an alternative culture, they could not and have not been able to take one step forward to liberate the mass of women from the exploitation and oppression they suffer. It is impractical and unnatural to think that women can have a completely separate existence from men. They have completely given up the goal of building a better human society. This strategy is not appealing to the large mass of women. Objectively, it became a diversion from building a broad movement for women's liberation. The radical trend by supporting pornography and giving the abstract argument a free choice has taken a reactionary turn providing justification and support to the sex tourism industry promoted by the imperialists, which is subjecting hundreds of thousands of women from oppressed ethnic communities and from the third world countries to sexual exploitation and untold suffering. While criticizing hypocritical and repressive sexual mores of the reactionary bourgeoisie and the church, the radical trend has promoted an alternative which only further alienates human beings from each other and debases the most intimate of human relations. Separating sex from love and intimacy, human relations become mechanical and inhuman. Further, their arguments are an absolute isolation from the actual circumstances of women's lives and their bitter experiences. Maria Mize has made a critique of this whole trend, which sums up the weakness of the approach. Quote, the belief in education, cultural action, or even cultural revolution as agents of change is a typical belief of the urban middle class. With regard to the women's question, it is based on the assumption that women's oppression has nothing to do with the basic material production relations. This assumption is found more among Western, particularly American feminists, who usually do not talk of capitalism. For many Western feminists, women's oppression is rooted in the culture of patriarchal civilization. For them, therefore, feminism is a largely cultural movement, a new ideology, or a new consciousness." Unquote. This cultural feminism dominated Western feminism and influenced feminist thinking in third world countries as well. It unites well with the postmodernist trend and has deflected the entire orientation of the women's movement from being a struggle to change the material conditions of life of women 
to an analysis of quote-unquote representations and symbols. They have opposed the idea of women becoming a militant force because they emphasize the nonviolent nature of the female. They are disregarding the role women have played in wars against tyranny throughout history. Women will and ought to continue to play an active part in just wars meant to end oppression and exploitation. Thus, they will be active participants in the struggle for change. Summing up, we can see that the radical feminist trend has taken the women's movement to a dead end by advocating separatism for women. The main weaknesses in the theory and approach are 1. Taking a philosophically idealist position by giving a central importance to personality traits and cultural values rather than material conditions, ignoring the material situation in the world completely and focusing only on cultural aspects. Two making the contradiction between men and women as the principal contradiction, thereby justifying separatism. 3. Making a natural fact of reproduction as the reason for women's subordination, and rejecting socio-economic reasons for the social condition of oppression, thereby strengthening the conservative argument that men and women are naturally different. 4. Making women's and men's natures immutable. 5 ignoring the class differences among women and the needs and problems of poor women. 6. By propagating women's nature as nonviolent, they are discouraging women from becoming fighters in the struggle for their own liberation and that of society. 7. In spite of claiming to be radical, having completely reformist solutions which cannot take women's liberation forward.